Monroe. How are you, sir? I'm well, Matt. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. Now, it's um, been, I don't know, it feels like a quiet week in, in, in equities. I was speaking to a few uranium uh, CEOs. Um, it's, it's head down and, and, and get on with things because the market's not listening. What are you feeling? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The price is quiet, sort of mid-53s, US dollars a pound. Equities are just sort of bubbling along, doing their thing. Um, what hasn't been quite as a news flow, I was having a conversation with somebody today and it's just remarkable that every single day there's this torrent of positive news flow about nuclear power. And it's interesting because we're starting to see that uh, get digested by the man and the woman on the street. I caught up with an old friend on Monday who has been a very long-time conservation uh, activist and uh you know, he was on Sea Shepherd boats hunting whalers and all of this sort of good stuff when I was at uni toiling my guts out. Uh, and he's he's a full bottle on nuclear power at the moment, and most of it he's picked up from his feed. So we're, we're seeing that great momentum, but you're absolutely right. It hasn't yet trickled down to what we're most interested in, which is uranium companies and uranium well, absolutely. And um, look, we, we are going to talk about lots of those things over the coming weeks uh, and, and months. Um, but new format show um, we've got lined up for folks today and uh, do feedback and let us know what you think about it. So without further ado, we're going to talk about six topics this week. Okay. Big news of the week is what? Well, it has to be the juicy reports that have everything it's got drama, it's got intrigue, it's got mystique. It's even got controversy in the staid halls of nuclear power people. Um, and that are the reports that the management exodus out of Kazadamprom, which we talked about a couple of times on this show, if you remember, um, seem to be provoked by a decision as reported. I don't have any insights here, but as reported, a decision by Samrat Kazaina, which is the sovereign wealth fund of Kazakhstan and 75% owner of listed Kazakh uranium company, Kazadamprom, to seemingly interfere in their management decisions around the exercise of a first rider of refusal over a 49% interest in the Budanovskaya uh, blocks six and seven uranium project in Kazakhstan. Now, that 49% was then taken up by entities associated with Rosatom, the Russian state-owned nuclear giant. Now, of course, this is very topical at the moment because Kazatomprom would be wanting to sell its uranium as it does into the US and into other countries that are very careful about association with Russia. And the implication, as reported, as alleged, is that there was interference in the management decision-making, the discharge of director's duties, inappropriate disclosure, and it's postulated by the authors of this article based on the sources that they gained that information from from within the company, that that's the reason why really good people like Asker Batubayev, the former chief commercial officer of Kazatomprom, decided to leave. Now, you might remember, Matt, at the time we did speculate over that because it did seem a bit unusual and there was a lot of speculation in the sector. And as I say, Asker's a real good guy and he'd gained a lot of confidence on behalf of Kazatomprom with his frank and open 
uh, approach to investor relations. Uh, he was very popular in the sector and liked amongst investors who were trying to pierce the veil of transparency that sometimes uh, Eurasian-based companies don't get automatic credit for. And ASCO was doing a good job with that. And then all of a sudden, poof, he's gone. He's resigned. So that is the intrigue of the week, I'd say. And it is big news because Kazatomprom, being the largest producer of uranium in the world, uh, if they can't contain the implications of this, and as I say, we don't know what's fact and what's implication from the article alone. If they can't contain that, that is going to make fuel buyers a bit nervous. Um, nobody really wants to be reliant for a substantial portion of their uranium on a company if they are worried that maybe there are, there's a puppeteer in the background in the form of a 75% shareholder who's acting in such a way that it's at least being perceived as doing um, backroom deals, as I saw it described by one commentator on Twitter. Moving on, um, this week's winner of the week is... Well, I think the winner of the week, I'd vote France. So, and, and the reason is they convened a EU member states in favour of nuclear power summit. So they managed to get, I think, 14 EU states who are not only producing nuclear power, but in favour of nuclear power. Italy came along for the ride as an observer and... Uh, Watchers of this sector would know that the Italian parliament's just passed some laws that enable them to consider introducing or reintroducing nuclear power into their country. And the French were obviously in such a magnanimous mood that they invited the Brits, I'll have you know, as non-EU participants. Uh, but the point is, they've got together, they met a couple of days ago, and they've set a reasonably ambitious target of 150 gigawatts of nuclear power inside EU. Um, within a confined period of time. Now, that's up from roughly 100 at the moment. So it's decent growth. I personally think there's a lot further that they will need to go if Europe's got any chance of reaching its carbon goals, but it's a good stepping stone towards those. It's, it's bite-sized bite enough that they can lock onto those ambitions, and once they have squared them away, then they can look at what they really need to do if they're going to achieve their carbon goals without strangling all of their economies in the process. Um, now, those 14 countries, bear in mind that it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about the, uh, the taxonomy. And at that stage, there were a group of 10 EU countries who came out in resolute support of including nuclear power within the green taxonomy of the EU. So it's interesting and it's um, instructive to see that group growing and it now includes the likes of Belgium and the Netherlands. So it's a good sign. It's the right trajectory. It's leaving the anti-nuclear players such as Germany and Austria more and more isolated as they should be. Interestingly, it wasn't that long ago that Italy was one of the anti-nuclear players as well. So when that group of 10... Uh, came out in support of the taxonomy. Italy was one of the countries that opposed it. So we are seeing this shift, even at an overt political level, which belies the enormous amount of support that's growing at a constituency level, um, as shown by various 
public opinion polls really around the world. Even even the dinosaur age of Australia is moving along with with a public opinion poll showing that they support in favour of nuclear power down here. And there was a parliamentary committee um, uh, undertaken over the last couple of days, an entire day of Senate hearings as to why we should lift the legislative ban on nuclear power and actually think about it as an alternative in this country. So everything's moving in the right direction. But I, I give the winner of the week to France for supporting what is right and actually growing a bit of uh, EU-based commission legislative courage um, to stare down Germany over the last few years with a bit of a help from the enormous snafu that Germany delivered in the, in the form of their disastrous energy policy. Now, with every winner of the week, there's usually a bungle of the week, an own goal of the week, whatever the phrase is in the countries that you're in. Who are you awarding that to this week? I think it's going to go to Belgium this week. And uh, that's on the back of some headlines that the operator of the Belgium grid has now said that uh, if they, if the government doesn't stop squabbling with Engie, who are the operators of two of the nuclear power stations that have been given a, a lease on life, that have been notionally extended for another 10 years, if they don't start quibbling and arguing, then the lights are going to go out. So the reason I'm picking on Belgium, not Engie, is that uh, the, it's the lawmakers who found their way into this bungle. Um, they have done an about turn, and as I said, they managed to find their way to the Paris summit that was held uh, during the week. Um, however, they're inheriting some real planning challenges associated with not only the decision to try and uh, eliminate nuclear power when it was 50% of their grid, seven reactors, but the fact that they took so long to see the writing that was in 100 font on the wall right in front of their eyes for everyone to see, and that they resisted for so long reversing that decision, basically until the energy crisis in Europe was so stark that they saw more political risk in continuing with that policy rather than showing some real courage and some economic management and some political leadership in reversing it earlier. So it will get reversed because the lights going off is not a, is not a satisfactory outcome. Uh, but I would like to see on behalf of our friends in Belgium that those remaining negotiations get tidied up quickly and uh, that the remaining elements in the government who are still trying to delay things and still trying to impose spokes in the wheels of those process, that they take a good hard look at themselves and drop out of that process so that the uh, those two nuclear reactors can um, remain viable and continue operation, not only for the next 10 years, but beyond. And there are two more reactors that need to be extended as well. So let's hope that this is a, a lesson for those obstinate lawmakers who hopefully are forming a smaller minority in Belgium um, not to oppose what, something that is just so important for their economy. This week's question of the week coming at you at high speed is, why is the US so hesitant to impose sanctions on Russian nuclear fuel? Oh, it's a good question and very topical at the moment because the bill that's proposing restrictions on nuclear fuel imports into the US from Russia has um, 
the companion bill has passed a reading in the House and the Senate in the US. Um, but the question is, well, does that mean that it's now destined to be enacted? And I think the answer for now is probably not. Now, the reason why is that the US has got a lot more to lose from Russia here if there is an immediate stop to the importation of nuclear fuels from Russia. So people who follow the sector closely would know that Russia produces 43% of the world's enrichment or has that much capacity, uh, a substantial amount of the world's conversion as well. So they're a big deal when it comes to low enriched uranium, the material that goes straight into a fuel rod um, shortly before it's needed to refuel a reactor. Now, the thing is that whilst the bills that are passing the or making their way through the US legislature have certain um, parameters that enable flexibility. So, for example, there's a potential for waivers if a US utility proves that it can't source alternative nuclear fuel, then there can be a waiver. And that's designed to soften the blow, to make sure that in introducing a sanction like this, it doesn't have a, a destructive effect on continued reliable power from nuclear in the US, bearing in mind that it's still the largest source of clean energy in the US. Now, the problem is that if the US legislature imposed those sanctions, by executive order, President Putin of Russia has the ability to impose his own sanctions. Uh, that was a... Um, the, the Duma, which is the Russian parliament, enacted that power several years ago after the first round of sanctions following their invasion of Crimea. So what the US is very concerned about is they might introduce these sanctions, these sort of softish sanctions that have got a few get-out-of-jail-free cards. And President Putin could turn around and say, well, forget you get-out-of-jail-free cards. There will be no more nuclear fuel leaving St. Petersburg or any other port of Russian denomination. And so he could impose an immediate supply blockage. And you know, Ros Adam probably derives about a billion dollars in profit each year from the US market. It's not an insubstantial amount of money, but then again, in the world of geopolitics, it's a pretty small change compared to what uh, is spent on the wars and the intrigue around all of that and, and the cost of various trading disputes and the other secondary implications from the various forms of sanctions that are being levied on Russia um, as a result of the Ukraine war. So that's really, the, to answer the question, that's the main reason why US lawmakers and most likely utilities as well are very hesitant about being too strident in imposing sanctions. They're worried about retaliation and the effects of retaliation could be both immediate and also very significant, given that the rest of the world is still trying to play catch up on uh, infilling their lack of capacity if you were to take that 43% of the world's enrichment capacity away in the form of sanctions. Okay, and um, we're going to um, do something called Tweet of the Week. And this one appearing on your screen right now from Mr. Elon Musk. Uh, what do you take a, what, what's your takeaway from that? Yeah, well... It's um, both of those tweets, um, no offense to Elon, but there's nothing particularly profound in them. It's many of the things that you and I have said, but the importance there is 
you know, he's got 140 million followers on Twitter. He owns the platform and it's actually quite profound to think that he's so assertively in favour and that that view has is getting such enormous distribution. And now it was also quite satisfying to see that one of those tweets was in response to the incredible nuclear activist Isabel Bomaki. Uh, she's the Brazilian supermodel who devotes a very large proportion of her leisure time uh, voluntarily to promoting nuclear power. She's doing an amazing job and many people cite her as the reason why Elon was prepared a couple of years ago to start being quite um, very assertively in favour of nuclear power. Um, she was very good friends with Grimes, who, um, as uh, Elon followers would know, is the mother of uh, one of Elon's children. And so there were many interactions that were able to take place a good couple of years ago before nuclear power became fashionable, as it is now, as we all know. So good on you, Elon. We're glad you own Twitter. Uh, keep up the appropriate and positive influencing uh, because we need a lot more people to come across to at least open their minds to the advantages of nuclear power when uh, trying to confront a climate crisis without destroying the world's economies. Okay, and we've, we've got um, potentially another 800-pound uh, gorilla entering um, the fray. Um, let's talk about your moonshot and fizzer of the week. Right, well, this, this is an interesting segment, moonshots and fizzers, because... We try and pick something that uh, has the potential to be a moonshot and we hope won't be a fizzer. And so we're choosing Zuri Invest and their Uranium AMC. AMC is Swiss for Accredited Market Certificate, which is a particular type of security that has various benefits for Swiss or Swiss-based investors. So they announced a little while ago, as followers of our show would know, that they were looking to raise 100 million US to put into physical uranium and they went and got the very capable people at Curzon Uranium Trading to be their advisors. And that was all looking very interesting until, ba-boom, they said that they'd need another month. And they had some technical sounding reasons as to why they'd need another month. And it had that intrigue of, you know, is this going to be a moonshot. Are they giving themselves another month because there's so much money coming in and there's so much money that's saying, yes, we want, but we just need to resolve this paperwork? Or did it have the potential to be a fizzer and they were clawing for extra time, which tends to be the view that a lot of people had? Uh, I, when I was in The Hague a few weeks ago, I uh, spoke to some investors who'd just been to a presentation that they had. So they came back with a very positive perspective. Uh, we've heard some people who are very much in the know making public statements in the last week that they think that they have surpassed their $100 million target and describe that target as quite a conservative or a soft target. So we won't know until the end of this month when that when that borrowed time, that extra, extra playing time comes due and the whistle's blown and we know where they're at with that $100 million. Is it 100 gone to 200 or is it an asking for extra time or do they fall over the line with 100 or 101? Now, it does have a lot of potential to impact the sector. If they came through with a real moonshot, a really good result here, more than 150 million, 
then apart from answering their critics, what it's also going to do is it's going to send a very strong messages to the health of the investment community's view on physical uranium. Not to mention that that amount of uranium being bought in the spot market is almost certainly going to move the needle, which will get the attraction attention of traders and others who would probably try and front run that type of move. Uh, if we just fall over the line or if, uh, if it doesn't quite make it, then I think that'll probably dash a few expectations and it, um, you know, it, it won't provide any upward support from where the uranium price is at the moment. So it's definitely one to watch. And the good news, Matt, is we don't have to wait for too long because by the end of this month, we're going to hopefully understand if it's a moonshot, which we hope it will be, or if it's starting to look a bit more like a fizzle.